Welcome back to the Game Dev Show. This week I'm delighted to have with me Alicia Thayer, Senior Technical Designer at Crystal Dynamics. Alicia's worked on many AAA titles from the Lara Crofts reboot in 2012 to Red Dead and Max Payne. Welcome, Alicia. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. How was that intro? Was that okay? That was great. Great. Fantastic. I'd like to check that it aligns. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing worse than introducing someone and they're like, actually, no. Um, (laughs) But yeah, how are you doing? How's how's everything going at Crystal It's actually really, it's going really well. I am transitioning right now from being a kind of like an an individual contributor to a a more leadership position. So that's been a a pretty exciting and and pretty different thing for me. I now have a team of six people, something like that, that I've been with for the past handful of months. I'm really liking the new job a lot. It's definitely, it's challenging in its own ways. uh, And I do miss being with the content all the time. Um, Mm. But yeah, it's been fun. The cost of success. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Always giving up the thing, the thing you love and the reason yeah. you got into into games. You have a much bigger impact as a an individual on the projects that you work on now. Yeah, I do actually. And it's a different sort of impact. Now I I joke that um on most days I feel like kind of a switchboard operator. <laughs> you know? um, just trying to get people to talk to each other, um, making sure that the that what we're working on is being done in the right order and the right priority, making sure that our relationships with our sister teams, our sister disciplines, we're communicating well to them and making sure that they know what we need from them and when and, and all of that stuff. It's it's kind of just making sure that the machine keeps moving and moves mm. smoothly, right? And that everyone on my team you know, the people that I have the, the closest contact with are happy with what they're doing yeah. and, and supported. As someone who enjoys and takes a lot of joy out of the support role kind of stuff, you know, making sure that my team is happy, it's a very satisfying job. It's just different. Yeah. Because you studied computer science at California University. And did you imagine that this is where you'd be now, like, you know, basically heading off a team at Crystal Dynamics at this point? Backing way up, I decided I wanted to work in games when I was like 12 or something like that. Like I had this, I I remember this moment. I had this pivotal moment where I realized that like, oh my God, people make video games and I could be one of those people. And I grew up in Chico, California, which is like in Northern California. It's very rural. It's in a valley, right? And so no connection to the game industry whatsoever. I just kind of, I made this decision and went like, okay, cool. I have no idea how. <laughs> you know? So I actually ended up staying in my hometown for my bachelor's and, and master's degrees um, just because there happened to be a program that was getting started that was kind of exactly what I wanted. I didn't have a ton of money, so I was able to stay home and live at home while I was going to school. So that was pretty great. No, I did not think I was going to end up here at all. I knew I wanted to be in the industry. I didn't know where I wanted to end up, right? I started with, you know, it's a kid. So you're just like, I don't know, animation, you know? And as I got older Mm. and I was going to school, I had kind of a communication design and computer science animation-y background through my program. Even then, as I was approaching graduation, I was still like, I don't quite know where I fit because I don't know anyone who works in the industry. (laughs) You know, I thought production for a while, like I thought maybe a producer role would be appropriate for me. And I got that idea from actually one of the guys that used to head up the volunteer program for GDC. Uh, Mm. He kind of took me aside one day, asked me what I wanted to do, (laughs) you know, Um, and I I said, I have no idea, but here's what I can do. And he said, you know, I think you'd be a really great producer. So I ended up using that as a lens with which to focus the end of my studies and actually start applying for jobs and things like that. I, I had out. hoped to end up here, but I, yeah, yeah. And, and certainly the way I ended up here, which I'm sure we'll, we'll cover a little bit later, not at all what I expected. At, really? At no, really? no, certainly not. <laughs> right? oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's the thing. Like sometimes it's just a bit of luck, right? Like where you yeah. start being in the right place at the right time, right like place, right you know, time. being able to study, staying at home, but also like, you know, the GDC connect and then actually being like, this is what I should focus on. When I trace my career, like these little pivotal moments, I'm sure everyone does this, but I look at it and go like, oh my God, if I had not made this decision to, like, it took me forever to go to GDC because I was ashamed of what I didn't know. And I was afraid, oh. right? So like undergrad, I could have been going to GDC as a volunteer and I never did. It, it took me until grad school to be like, God, I should just go. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I should just go. That is where I started making a few connections, getting, having these mm. really pivotal conversations, you know, where it's like, hey, you know, think about this kind of stuff instead, visiting even the Kerr Pavilion and just talking to people who were Mm. hiring, even when I wasn't looking for a job, like that kind of stuff just all started to point me in the right direction. So I at least knew where to look, you know? Yeah, but you still got, you've got to take the initiative, right? Like that's the thing I think. And also I do completely get that like human element, not wanting to appear to know less than you do, because 
you don't want it to be the people are like, oh, this you know, this person doesn't know anything. Well, they're never going to work in the industry, right? Like this just isn't right for you. And I think it's great that you just took those first steps because I think that can be, it can just be very challenging. I was going to ask you as well, actually, because, you know, talking of like traveling and going to places, whilst you were at California Uni, you actually did an exchange program when you went to Nagoya. I did. Um, for six months. What was, what, as an exchange student, what was that like? So that's a funny story too. When I got to grad school, I realized that like if I wanted to study abroad, this was kind of my last chance. I was about to be like done with school. So I took a ton of French in high school, actually, and I like about four and a half years of French, something like that. But I was taking Japanese at the time in grad school just for funsies. And (laughs) (laughs) so was my boyfriend at the time. And we both were like, you know what, let's go study abroad. Let's go do this thing. So we picked Japan. The program that we could get into was a little bit aggressive in terms of like linguistic requirement. And looking back on it, I think they fudged it a little bit, right? Because like my (laughs) Japanese was not that great. Like, you know, I could sight read, you know, uh, hiragana and katakana pretty well. My kanji was really weak. And my conversational skills, I'd say, was like borderline survival, you know, (laughs) somewhere in there. This program was pretty crazy. Like they wanted you to live in, they had this uh, exchange student building that was mostly Chinese and Korean uh, exchange students and like a tiny little handful, like three, you know, kids from America, something like that. So like you weren't going to be speaking English at all. We got off the plane. We got our orientation. I signed a lease <laughs> like in Japanese, <laughs> right? And they gave us a map again in Japanese and we're like, okay, cool. Like here's all the stuff that you need to know about your neighborhood. Anyway, peace, bye, right? So like we get dropped off. <laughs> my poor boyfriend and I are like, can you read this? And I'm like, no, we can do it. Nope. Okay. So we're up in our room. They've outfitted the room with, you know, just a pillow and a comforter. And we're like, right, we have to go get food. Okay. <laughs> you know, and like toilet hey. paper. We had to go get toilet paper too. We didn't have any toilet paper. So we basically just kind of picked a direction to walk. Um, we lived up pretty high. We were on like the sixth floor of a building, sixth or seventh floor of a building. And we like, we look out. I remember looking out being like, that looks like a store. <laughs> you know? so we literally just start walking in a direction, hoping to find food and toilet paper, you know, and that was kind of the start of my trip. <laughs> like, and, it, and that's kind of how it went, you know, was just, wow. it was jumping into the absolute deep end of living in a foreign country. It's what I wanted. Like I wanted to go somewhere where I could feel what I used to say to myself is I used to say, I want to go somewhere where I feel like a minority, right? A true minority to see what that was like. And I got that in spades in Nagoya. Nagoya, even though it's the fourth largest city in Japan, where I was staying was, I mean, there were hardly any foreigners at all. English was not spoken routinely. English was on some signs, which was helpful, right? But by and large, it was like, get good and get good fast. You know? <laughs> and did you? Uh, I, you know what? I got pretty good. (laughs) I wouldn't say that I was fluent, but by the time I had left, I had gotten very comfortable with my neighborhood, very comfortable with grocery shopping, kind of all the day-to-day stuff. And in fact, I had gotten to a place where I really did want to practice my linguistic skills with other people. The way I look got in the way a lot because I look so foreign, right? I am so, so white. For people who can't see me, I know this is a podcast. Like I have red hair, I have green eyes, I am very pale. I look very much of European (laughs) descent. For example, I remember being at open air market, right? And I was just ordering a coffee. Like, I just wanted to go get a coffee, right? And so I'm at this window with this guy. And he looks at me, his eyes bulge, right? <laughs> they get really, really big. And he's just like, nope. And he goes running the other direction, saying English, English, English in Japanese, right? Like to, to his coworkers of like, I can't speak English. I can't speak English. Someone come up to the window, like, you know, please help me. Please help me. Uh, I can't take an order from this woman, you know? And I'm like, no, wait, I can do this. I can do this. Please, please come oh, back. <laughs> oh, no, that's yeah. great. So, yeah. It was a really fun trip. Um, I I did some other hard mode things that are pretty crazy. Like I took most of my coursework in Japanese. I took a Japanese calligraphy class from a guy that I think legit did not speak any English at all. It was just kind of like catch on as much as you want. The only class that I took that I think was bilingual was a Japanese history class. And the teacher was amazing. He was kind enough to do the lecture in Japanese and then in English. So he would do a chunk in Japanese, a chunk in English, and he'd move on, which was, yeah, that was quite exceptional. Do you still practice it now? Oh my gosh, I wish I had time. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> French or, or Japanese, I practice neither and I feel like a jerk for it. It's in there somewhere, right? But it, it's yeah. unfortunately rotting. Well, so. I think that's great. I think it's great that you had, um, you know, like the car, you did GDC and going to Nagoya like that in, in that context, you're right. I'm is, glad I did um, it when I did. Yeah, it was really yeah, cool. Like, I think I would have just collapsed. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what? Okay, I'll be I'll be completely honest with you. Like that trip was amazing. I do not regret going. I God, I wish I could go back and do it again. But there were a lot of tears too, right? It was still mm. very hard. It was very stressful. It felt very isolating. My communication skills were infantile, you know. And so if you imagine spending six months in a culture where that's it, that's the extent to which you can communicate unless you find the right person. Um, mm. who can share in English with you instead of in Japanese or in Korean or what have you, right? I had a, a really good friend that I made over there who was Korean and she preferred to speak in Japanese because she was stronger in Japanese and she wasn't English. I chose to speak in English because <laughs> I was stronger in English <laughs> and Japanese. And so we'd have bilingual conversations like on the train. It just meant that like everything was hard. Going mm. to the store was hard. Using the train was hard. Even talking to your friends was hard. So it just, everything takes that extra effort. So by the end of the day, you're just flattened, right? I can imagine it was, things are okay, I guess, if they're like, they're predictable and you know what's going to happen. But I imagine if something went wrong, then you're like, oh God, yeah, like I have to, it's like, I don't know, just for example, <laughs> say you have a, a leak or a flood or you need to like call out a plumber. I can imagine situations like that, which are a bit off the, you know, the beaten path, then all of a sudden they become three, four times as stressful because you're trying to explain something which is quite important, but it's completely outside of what you've learned. And still, no matter what you do, you always do it wrong because you're just in a culture that's different from your own, you know? Yeah. Um, so like your instincts are just incorrect. The plumber thing's interesting. I don't remember. I think we did have a toilet that clogged because we had asked to borrow a plunger. And so we went to return it. We had cleaned it and everything like that, right? And so we, we returned it all clean, all that good stuff. We put it on the desk and go like, here's your plunger. And the look on their face, like they just turn white as a sheet, right? And they're just mortified. Just like, oh my God, get that thing off our desk. <laughs> you know, or just like, God, we can't do anything right. You know, oh, I'm so my. sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh my, yeah. yeah. From uni, your first role was actually at Rockstar. That's right. Um, Rockstar San Diego. Yeah. How did that come about? (laughs) About six months before I graduated from college, and this is my grad program, right? I was like, oh, God, I should really start looking for jobs, you know? Um, And again, remember, I was looking for both design and production, just trying to find some entry-level position, right? I must have applied (laughs) to, I'm going to guess, over 100 places over the course of six months. And I've heard a lot of people with this exact same story of like, yeah, I applied everywhere. I never heard back from anywhere. I heard back from two companies through that entire experience. One was high voltage software. And (laughs) that interview exploded. (laughs) That was not a good interview. It was a phone interview. And it hit this really awkward moment. So when I was working in my grad program, right, and I was completing my coursework, I was also teaching. And I had taken over the lab components of like intro to game design and like a couple of other classes, right? So I was teaching intro to game design to a bunch of like freshman kids, you know, and the guy that was interviewing me at High Voltage really took issue with that and really drilled me about if I really felt like I was qualified enough to teach game design, having never done it professionally. And man, wow. as a, you know, an early 20 something, you know, like just trying to get an entry position, I was like, I don't know how to answer this question. How do you, how do you respond to <laughs> you that? Know? Like, what oh do you God, say? What do you say? <laughs> So it's just kind of one of those things where you're like, I just don't think this is going super well. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank, you, <laughs> you know? thank you for your time. Thank you, for, oh. thank you so much for your time. Yeah, um, and and to be fair, it was for I was being interviewed for a level design position, and I will say right now that I am not a level designer. I know that for a fact now. I did mm. not know that at the time. I know that for a fact now. Like <laughs> spatial design is just not my jam. I'm much more a systems person. The other the other people I heard from from was Rockstar and. What I never told Rockstar and what I do tell only a few people, I'm more comfortable with it now because it's been, you know, well over a decade is that I kind of forgot I applied to Rockstar. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I don't mean that in a mean way or like I don't want to work there sort of way. But like, remember, I had applied to like, you know, a hundred places and I was kind of desperate. And by the time Rockstar got back to me and it was literally on the same day, I know this sounds dramatic. This is the God's honest truth. On the day that I had given up, I had walked over to my favorite cafe with my best friend. I was like, I don't think this is possible. I don't think it's possible to get an entry-level position in the games industry. Maybe I have the wrong qualifications. I don't know what's wrong with me or I don't know if I'm doing mm. something wrong. I I don't think I can get in. I literally got a call from Rockstar Games that day where they were like, could we do an interview? And I was just like, oh, what wow. the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, so I do this phone interview. I, you know, I completely freaked out over it. I did, you know, like a ton of research on my interviewers. I remember like I had this, it was so funny, like this research and meditation circle that I had like spread out papers, you know, across <laughs> my bed, just kind of like, okay, don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up. Did the phone interview. Less than a week later, I had a request for an on-site. But that story gets a little bit funnier because the on-site was in Southern California, San Diego, right? And mm. so I was to fly down there and then I needed to drive to the office to do the interview. 
the problem being I didn't have a driver's license, uh, which is, <laughs> and I actually didn't know how to drive. And that's really not a normal thing for an American living in California, right? Except for I grew up in a college town that was very bike friendly. And yeah. I think I mentioned this before, I was pretty dirt poor. So I wasn't going to buy a car anyway. So I didn't have anything to learn on. I was like, I'll get my license when I get my license. So suddenly <laughs> I'm in this really awkward position of like, yeah, I'd love to interview at your company. I don't know how I'm going to get there. So they were cool enough to get me a driver. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? That's great. Yeah. That's so good. So I had a chauffeur drop me off at the office, which is kind of hilarious. Did the interview. It was an all-day interview. It was grueling. And I was given a whiteboard design test. I was interviewed by the lead of Chinatown Wars and the lead of Red Dead Redemption. I didn't know what they were working on. They didn't mention it or anything like that. But anyway, I do the design test on the on the whiteboard. And one guy leans back in his chair. I remember he just kind of like leans back, right? <laughs> he looks at the other guy and he goes, you ever seen that solution before? And the other one goes, nope. And I'm like... <sighs> Oh, I messed up. I messed up so bad. Oh, well, no. thank you very much. It's been very nice. Yeah, it's been a really good experience. Yeah, that's kind of did, did I tell um, you that I'm uh, teaching to game design as well? <laughs> I know, right? I also teach freshman game design. I have no experience. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, but less, less than a week later, I had uh, an offer letter in my inbox and was like, oh, <laughs> like, I that's did the amazing. thing. I, um, I'm moving to San Diego. I need to learn how to drive now. <laughs> wow. How long does that take in the US? Is it quite well? Um, I knocked it out in a couple of weeks. My boyfriend taught me how to drive on, oh, wow. on his 300ZX. So the oh, racing nice. Bus. No, well, oh. nice and not forgiving. Not to learn it. No, oh. uh, I took my test on a much more friendly car, on an automatic. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Like I had to pack up my entire life, find a car, buy a car, take my driver's test, get a license, and then boom, like drive wow. down, move, find a place to live, hope that I didn't move in with an axe murderer, you know, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Like that moment with G going to GDC for the first time, going to Nagoya, then going to San Diego. It's it's very impressive. You just seem to throw yourself into these scenarios and then as you put it earlier, we're going to Nagoya, like, you know, survive, essentially. Um, <laughs> survive yeah. until you can advance. And what a great company to go and work for. I couldn't have picked a better place to start, you know, especially like, I mean, mm. I, my first game that I shipped was Red Dead Redemption, <laughs> you know, yeah. at, at the right place, right time. I didn't know what they were working on at the time. And I show up and I'm like, oh, you guys are making a cowboy game. That's rad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, it's a really pretty cowboy game. Okay. I love cowboys. I'm into oh, this, you know. That's um, great. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you also worked on Max Payne, didn't you? Mm -hmm. you were, uh, and I've got to ask you this because obviously, like, given your role, given your like expertise, Max Payne is, you know, for me, it's like the inception of bullet time was Max Payne. I remember back in the day, like, you know, I think Matrix had already come out and like you had bullet time was a huge thing in the Matrix. And then obviously Max Payne came out and it was just done so well. And I believe you worked on Max Payne 3. That's right. Um as like a like you know like a systems designer, do you does something like bullet time restrict or encourage you know the way you approach the creative process? Yeah, when I just want to say that I'm a huge Max Payne fan as, as well. Like it was the reason why I ended up on Max Payne three is because we had finished Red Dead and then we finished the Undead Nightmare pack also that came out after that. It was like the zombie DLC, right? We were kind of in a transition phase and I actually put in a request with Rockstar and said, like, I know Max Payne is being worked on right now. I love this series so much. Can I work on it? And they said yes, but they also said we want you to go on site. And so it was being developed in Vancouver, British Columbia. And so they shipped me up to Vancouver, British Columbia for a year and a half. And I worked on site with that team. That was pretty rad. But to answer your bullet time question, I think that bullet time is a, an absolute joy to design for. I, I kind of wish like more games had it, you know. So it allows mm. us to create these really intricate and rich, like busy set pieces for the player to absorb. And I worked on basically touched more or less every single level in that game. The way it worked is like we had multiple studios working on multiple rockstar studios working on the game and we kind of divvied up the levels in chunks like you get this chunk you know that you get this chunk you get this chunk but by the end we were all kind of scrambling back and forth and just you know fixing things everywhere so i ended up touching pretty much everything but two places i have two examples where bullet time really shown in max Payne 3 right so there, there's a police precinct level we had forced bullet time sequences right where those were really exotic where we put max into like a special animation state you know we'd lock down the player controls in certain ways it'd be like a really nice exotic sequence and there's of course the player initiated bullet time right so there's this one in the police precinct where like Max 
flies through a door and he jumps onto a cart, lays on the cart, and then just kind of it turns into a rail shooter at that point. But it's all oh, forced slow mo. But it lets you sit and like watch. Max Payne's very fast paced, right? And so you're in reaction mm-hmm. mode all the time. So it gives you a chance to really appreciate, you know, the shattering glass, the sound effects, really parse where all the enemies are, get like some really nice perfect headshots, feel very skilled, feel very awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool version of it. The other version of it, and this is a sequence that I worked on whew, for a really long time, is you walk into a room. I feel like it's like a science lab or forensics lab or something like that. And as you walk in, in real time, repellers come through the window and break through the window. And it's like four repellers break through a window. It's a really complex sequence to happen in gameplay. Most players, though, freak out and mash the bullet time button, right? Which allows (laughs) you to see how much work we put into that, right? Getting the ropes to line up and getting the, you know, the animations just right. I mean, I must have frame by framed and made sure that like the second their feet touch the window, it breaks. So it breaks at the right time. And then, you know, the effects guys come in and make sure that the, the effects are all perfect and stuff. That's pretty much the only way in like those fast paced action games, you know, bullet time that you can really take your time to savor those moments yeah. and appreciate the craft, right? Because like a lot goes into that. Yeah, that's incredible. I, quick time events like, you know, QTE, it's weird that they're not, I'm not saying obviously this is the same as QTE, but also it's the similar ethos of being able to, at points in a game, just appreciate like you said, the animation, the actual, like, um, the conflict, if you like, what's actually going on. Because often when you're part of it, and obviously when you're the one putting in all the commands and, say, activating bullet time manually, it's almost like a, you're trying to survive. So you're trying to, like, kill everything as quickly as possible. For example, with QTE, it's more about, again, you're surviving, but it might not be trying to kill everything. You are literally just trying to survive through a scripted set piece. And mm-hmm. do you know what was interesting, actually, when I was looking, obviously, like, doing a bit of stalking with yourself, I saw that... Um, you got like special thanks for Red Dead 2. I did. Um, and I did work yeah. on it. Yeah. yeah in pre-production, right? <laughs> I did, in, two- yeah. in 2012. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then it came out like, what, six years later? Yeah. Um, so obviously, I mean, I don't know how long it was in development for. I'm assuming that's six, seven, eight years. But is it tough when you work on something in pre-production? Because you'd left before, obviously, not long after that obviously working on that in pre-production, is it quite a tough thing not being part of the bigger project and not seeing it through its development cycles? Yeah, so first I just want to say that I thought it was a very, it's a really classy play on Rockstar's part to even include my name in special things. Mm. I, I did not expect that. And I didn't expect it because when I worked there, and I know they've changed quite a bit since then, but when I worked there, it was still policy to leave off the names of developers that had left before the project shipped. And that meant literally any time before the project shipped. So if you had put in your full, you know, seven years or what have you, and you left three weeks before the project shipped, that was it. Your name gets off, you know, like, oh, I, yeah. So I know some people, a few people that got shorted at a very powerful credit on RDA one and that was really heartbreaking for me. So I, I thought it was very cool of Rockstar to reconsider that policy. But what's funny about RDR2 coming out was that, you know, I'd been at Crystal for quite some time at that point. I was very established at Crystal. So telling people that like, oh, by the way, I worked on RDR too. Like watching them do the mental math, right? <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> but you've been here. <laughs> you know? How is that? It's like, yeah, I mean, that game's been in production for some time. Um, but to your question, yeah, it's, it is hard not seeing a product mm. through to the end, certainly. But by the time I left Rockstar, I was feeling a lot of pull to Northern California. And the reason for that is that my long-term partner lived up there. So I've, I've been with my partner since college. And when we graduated, we both were in the same, more or less the same program. He got a internship at Crystal Dynamics um, and I went down to Rockstar. (laughs) And so we were apart (laughs) for, I think it was three, three and a half years, something like that. In between that, right, I was down at San Diego and then up at Vancouver and back down to San Diego again. And so by that point, I was like, I'm ready to not do this long distance relationship thing anymore. You know, so if I can land a job in Northern California, that'd be great. Um, Mm. Yeah, so that's more or less why I left Rockstar in the end. But it was really cool with Red Dead to see what changed and kind of what stayed the same from the original pre-production pitch. Like, I remember walking, we had this really beautiful concept art wall that would show off all the regions in the game, right? All the locales and what they were supposed to look like. And I remember walking up and down being completely hype, you know, going like, oh, this game's going to be absolutely gorgeous. And a lot of those concept pieces, you know, were very representative of what ended up being in the final ship game. Was that your driving reason to, you know, like move then from Rockstar to Crystal Dynamics was, I mean, three and a half years is a long time to be away from your partner. Mm -hmm. That was one of the main reasons for sure. 
I was still only, you know, three or so years into my career at that point. So I still didn't have, you know, any sort of extreme confidence, like even having shipped Red Dead and Max Payne at that point, like that I would be able to land wherever I wanted. So I was kind of, again, shotgunning resumes up into the Bay Area going like, mm. anyone interested? I'd like to move, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and landing at Crystal was kind of interesting because I had applied to Crystal, certainly, but I hadn't heard back from them during my mm. entire kind of investigation reach out feelers process. And so by the time I was getting ready to move, I had had offered letters from Disney and from Telltale Games. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, I've got these two. I could do the move. And I only ended up even having a chance at Crystal by virtue of the fact that my partner, who was at the time, I think, you know, like a junior designer on the original, like the Tomb Raider reboot, the first game, yeah, was in the break room talking to a coworker of his who was just casually asking, hey, how's your girlfriend? You know, like, and he's like, oh, she's, you know, she's looking for a new job. My now narrative director, and who was narrative director at the time, overhears this conversation and goes like, oh, yeah, what she worked on. And then suddenly <laughs> they have this conversation. He, my partner, hooks me up with the narrative director. We start emailing. We had this absolutely insane, really pleasant exchange over the course of about a week, right? Where we're like emailing one another over like talking about, I mean, obviously career stuff to start, but we really hit it off. And like the next thing I know, we're like talking about like raising his kids and like, you know, like life <laughs> philosophy and stuff like that. So it was just, like that. there was a ton of chemistry. Anyway, so like John, who's my narrative director, leaned on HR. HR expedited an onsite interview. I like flew up just kind of like the, at the last minute, interviewed, hit it off with the team, loved what I saw, got an offer that day and accepted it. So, you know, it just kind of went like, wow. like, oh yeah, like let's talk to this person and done. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. It, don't, don't you find it weird, right? Like if we didn't have these interactions and relationships that that may just never have happened. It's another like, one of those you, weird things that you look at and go like, well, if that hadn't happened, we're, I don't know where I would have ended yeah, up. You know? yeah. I mean, what Disney, Disney or Telltale would be. Does Disney or Telltale. Yeah. yeah that would have been yeah. a different story because Telltale is now closed. Yeah, of course. Of course. It is mad, isn't it? Like, it just seems that your career just goes through these moments. Like you said, you know, like when you were drawing out your timeline of mm-hmm. like your career and your like experiences, like really does have like these pinnacle moments of this happened, but there's actually like a story within a story. Mm-hmm. Like often when you speak to people, it's just, and I think most, most people are like this, but like, you know, yeah, I left here because I wanted a new challenge or I left here because I wanted to do this. But the actual experience of actually joining that new company is um, normally quite linear, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas yours, you do have these relationships, you do have that built with with John, with the, mm. your narrative lead. So yeah, I think it's really cool. And you obviously joined at a really, really cool time because it was when the, like, the Lara Croft reboot and Tomb Raider reboot was coming out That's while right. being developed. And it's obviously it's an incredible IP, right? Like it's a staple of like action adventure. It's so much more now because it's almost like a narrative led action adventure slash survival game. Mm-hmm. What was it like being part of the project and was there like trepidation because it is such a big IP and reboots can be, you've got to please a lot more people than you do with like a fresh IP? So for me, I joined the Tomb Raider 2013 reboot a little later in production. I don't remember if they were post-alpha or not. It's been a while. But anyway, I was I was hired to work on an incubator that ended up not making it at Crystal, which was fine. But they asked me to, quote, cut my teeth on the reboot game. Uh, <laughs> so I ended up immediately joining the reboot game. And what cracked me up is that they were like, we need someone to work on our ambient systems, right? We need, you know, we need a systems designer to work on getting the game's world to feel alive. I got to chuckle out of the fact that they put the red dead girl on the hunting mechanic (laughs) (laughs) it's like we've seen you do this before (laughs) oh she worked on it from world game we can get her to do this you know so that's what i ended up doing for them you know i ended up doing a few other things but that was kind of where i had started also they had like a proprietary tool set right and and all of that so i arrived from rockstar went like okay new tools new everything had got to learn how how all this works got to learn how to navigate this existing game do all the hunting stuff okay now ship go you know that sort of thing. So <laughs> trepidation, no trepidation. Um, when I joined to work on Team Raider, by that point, I had shipped, you know, two incredible third person action adventures. And so like, mm. I felt, I felt really at home working on Team Raider. I just kind of felt like this is something that I know how to do at this point, you know, and mm. so I feel like I have something to bring to this game. I've absolutely loved working on the reboot games. I think that's an incredible honor, just the fact that I've managed to land jobs working on two of my beloved franchises, right? Yeah. I've gotten to work on Max Payne and the the Tomb Raider series. I definitely played Tomb Raider as a kid and yeah. absolutely adored it. I've not only worked on reboot. Reboot's very fun to work on, don't get me wrong, right? 
I also got to work on Lara Croft and the Temple of Osiris, which was mm. the little top-down like co-op adventure Completely game. different, yeah. 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 Those are like, the vibe there is totally different, right? On the reboot series, it's all about Lara being like smart and resourceful, and it's about celebrating her passion for wonder and history and adventure, all kind of while maintaining that like tight, action-packed cadence, kind of much mm. like Max Payne does, right? Like you're expected, like, let's go from beat to beat, let's go, you know, give the player nice opportunities to feel cool, you know, all that good <laughs> stuff. In the arcade series, there was way more of like an anything goes vibe. Which honestly is like kind of a breath of fresh air for someone who's used to working on these like gritty, grounded action adventure mm. games. So when I was handed Lara Croft in the Temple of Osiris, right, like just the fact that we could experiment in a very mechanics forward kind of way, we didn't have to justify everything, right? We're just like, you're fighting a giant dung beetle, you're fighting a giant <laughs> crocodile, you know, like you can turn into a rolly ball. Like, why? Like, I don't know. It just. I made a rolly ball and it looked cool and, you know, that sort of stuff. All of the development on, on that game on Osiris was very much about finding fun first, mm. right? And justifying it later. Not great if you're, you know, a, a narrative person. Awesome if you're a systems designer or a gameplay <laughs> designer. You're just like, freedom, you know? <laughs> does, does it make it harder, though, to have, like, all that freedom? Because does it all of a sudden you're like, I have to be overtly creative because you're like, I, the shackles have been unchained. And, you know, sometimes it... I can imagine it means that there are so many ideas and it's like, which ones do you implement? Yeah, um, that goes into like prototyping and things like that, right? It's just like when you have that freedom, you can just kind of explore these little bite-sized bits of gameplay and see if they have uh, promise. And if they do, you can move those forward. It gives you a nice little canvas to just not have to worry about why the character you in in the reboot series you always have to worry about why lara is doing something right and and make sure that it stays true to her brand true to her her personality true to the the character that you're trying to present that smart resourceful you know she always finds the the secret way in stuff right you know like the reverence for history and and the sense of wonder and all that that all that's always in every decision that you make it's not that it's not in the arcade title right it's just that you get to do some fun stuff first that's strictly just does this feel great on the sticks before having to justify all of those other things yeah i think that's really cool and i think it's good to see crystal do that right <laughs> like it was good to see actually let's see what else we can do with the ip because the reboot's been a success right and it's like let's just see how far we can take it do you think they will create another one i want them to so bad i don't know <laughs> i know I, I, I honestly like i don't know um i don't have any uh, any visibility on on what our slate looks like you know in the next handful of years but i can tell you that there is there's enthusiasm on the team for yeah. for that type of game there's definitely a pocket of us that love working on couch co-op games you know mm. um like i personally have a soft spot for co-op games um and i don't get many opportunities in my career to work on one i know that there is love there is definitely love uh, among the yeah. developers at crystal for those types of games they're, they're quite a core. I was playing uh, Overcooked with my son and my wife. I partner. love Overcooked. Yeah. And I was, oh, it's so they're good. So, they're so, it's such an incredible, like, all stressful co-op experience because, obviously, you always feel that person. It's really weird how it mimics real life, but everyone wants to cook, right? No, no one wants to wash up. Like, so. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's so true. And then like you just end up getting into arguments and yeah, but it always starts off like, you know, positive themes. It's weird, isn't it? I always feel like co-op games are almost like vintage in some ways, right? Like they're such incredible experiences. They just don't seem as mainstream as they used to. And I think, you'd think the internet would give more access to this, but I sometimes think like the creator player base is actually focused more on, you know, like MOBAs and mm -hmm. um, Battle Royale games and things like this. But actually core game experiences especially with people who don't play games regularly i find co-op games by far the best they're so great because right? you introduce them to something but you do it together i think it's amazing I mean, working at temple of Oris, right like so you, obviously like you said it's like the thematically you're still in the lara Croft world and you're still part of that same ip but at the same time like you said you, you have greater freedom like how how do you do that how do you and it's the same with the reboot how do you innovate but also stay true to the source so for a game like Tomb Raider, it can be really overwhelming, even keeping the franchise's history in your head. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Lara Croft has been around for 25 years. So that's 25 years of games and comics and animes and all sorts of other stuff, right? All sorts of little transmedia, little projects, right? So when I was designing for the reboot, I would spend a lot of time watching like Let's Plays of the older games poking around on Twitter at like fan conversations and like looking at message boards. I'm sorry for fans of Tomb Raider, like the devs do look, <laughs> you know, we, we do kind of creep on that kind of stuff. We're interested in hearing what you have to say, you know, but this helped me like root myself in the game's actual history while kind of comparing it to what resonated with the fans of the game today. 
But mm. the thing that I, I liked to consider even more was my own nostalgia and what I remembered from the older games and how my memory compared to like what actually was, you know, yeah. um, because I think that there's a lot of fuel for innovation in those rose colored glasses, right? That's what your brain does, the, the actual experience versus what you took away from it. That considering when the original Tomb Raider was made, right? Like the graphics, it's PS1 graphics, you know? Like yeah. Completely different design paradigms and things like that. Like things have changed a great deal. So I think that there's just, there's a lot of uh, opportunity in that gap to, yeah. you know, take those things and use those as inspiration for moving the franchise forward. And just remember, like, you had to do, like, pixel perfect jumps in the original Tomb well, Raider. Because you had tank controls, right? <laughs> yeah, like, and it was, it was just, it was crazy difficult. I remember being like, oh God, it's such a long going now, but like a museum. And I remember these pillars and jumping from pillar to pillar and grabbing onto the ledge. And I, I literally couldn't grab onto this ledge. And I thought, well, is this, am I even in the right place? Should I be trying to grab onto this ledge? And then you'd explore everywhere and you'd like backtrack so much. And you realize that, yeah, no, you are supposed to grab onto the ledge. What's also really funny for a dev, like working with Lara Croft, right, is that she's already done so much, right? Mm. That even if you do pitch like a new idea for her, chances are she's already done it in like an animated series or a comic or an offshoot game, right? So it can be really challenging coming up with something genuinely new and innovative for her. Do you think there is a point where you're like, it just gets crazy what she's doing, so we can't do I mean, I guess that's the challenge, isn't it? It's staying true to the source, mm -hmm. but do you get a point where you're like, well, there's nothing else we can do because we have exhausted it. And unfortunately, that is the payoff of having a grounded world. I don't feel like we've exhausted it. It feels that way sometimes, though, right? Like, it, I mean, like, I know internally we've been like, hey, let's have her do X and Y. And then someone comes back and goes like, well, done it already, you know. And then you have to make the decision of like, well, done it already, but has it been long enough that we could do it again? You know, is it mm. is it weird if we do it again? Does it muck with the canon? Like all of that stuff. I think it'd be so hard to actually find who stores that information. Is there someone who just stores this is everything that she's done? So we're lucky that we have someone on our team. Her name is Megan Marie. Um, she was a, an absolute massive Tomb Raider fan in her youth, and she has since she started working for Crystal, I believe, as our um, like one of our community coordinators, and has since you know basically our resident Tomb Raider accessibility all sorts of things expert, right? Um, and she herself is just a bible of Tomb Raider knowledge. You know, um, one. She's just so connected to our community, <laughs> you know, she's just constantly aware of what our fans have done uh, in the past and are currently doing. But she just also is just has an, an encyclopedic knowledge of the game. Mm. She's actually written. She wrote a, a book, had a whole bunch of like developer interviews and stuff like that in that for the I think it was for the 20. Oh, my gosh. Was it the 20 year anniversary? I'll have to look it up. But yeah, like I think it's 20 years of an icon. Yeah, 20 years of an icon. She wrote an entire book that got published wow. that was like, here's Tomb Raider front to That's back, you know. Brilliant. So the, it's, a, it's a gift having her on the team, right, as a gut check for those sorts of things. Um, That's incredible. If, if we didn't have her, though, we'd definitely use her book. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. It's so it's so nice to hear. Like obviously, you, like you know, you naturally assume that everyone's lives, but it's so nice to hear. Like there's that level of passion from like yourself and other people on the team who just know Tomb Raider like mm -hmm. so well. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you. So obviously, we've spoken quite a bit about innovation and like how to innovate within the original source. But did you have like a development process when working on a new project? Do you like have a template in your mind about how you're going to approach each project? What's that like? It does change from project to project, but I like overall, yeah, I mean, at this point in my career, I definitely have a process. So almost any time I start a new project, I allot myself a good chunk of time to do research and what research might mean changes from, you know, from task to task. So this might be like competitive research, uh, GDC talks, state of the industry, history random Googling, mm. reading books, whatever is appropriate for the project, right? I take extensive notes during that whole process. I often do like deep dives on concepts. I get really obsessive about stuff and that helps me become kind of a little mini subject expert, right? And I refer back to those notes many times over the course of development. But from there, I really like to jump on into like on-screen pixels as soon as possible, if I can. So I don't know how familiar you are with development, but like, you, you know, people, some people talk about like design documents or things like that. Mm, I don't yeah. tend to, to jump straight into design documents right off the bat. I like to get in play um, and kind of get mm. a tactile feel for, I mean, I'm a gameplay designer, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah. Yeah, 
get a, a tactile feel for um, what's working and what's not working. Like, I'll give an example, right? So I worked on some procedural content for one of the Rise of the Tomb Raider DLC packs. It was called Cold Darkness Awakened. I created a little um, puzzle like a, that could assemble itself at runtime. It was all programmatic, right? And so it would match um, symbols and colors and, and all sorts of things that, and create a, a combination that you're supposed to enter in order to pass something, right? You solve a puzzle and you win sort of thing. So... Mm. That came about because my lead at the time was we were all playing Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes uh, during lunch. I don't know if you remember that game. No. No. Okay. No. I'll explain what this game's like. So please, please, it's yeah, really please, cool, please, actually. It's a very, very explain. cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also got a great name. The Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, it's one person's at a PC and they've got a bomb, right? And the bomb's got a whole bunch of like switches and levers and buttons and a timer and all that stuff, right? So they're there controlling the bomb. And then there's a, mm. actually like a printed manual, right? That everyone else yeah. is given. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's multiple printed manuals and stuff. But the, the point of the game is while the bomb is ticking, it's about to explode, the person with the bomb is trying to communicate with the people with the instructions, you know, on, on how to defuse the bomb. And so you're having to like rapidly flip through these pages and talk about, you know, like, oh, look for this symbol or, or look for this color or cut this wire, don't cut this wire, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and it's very, very exciting, very stressful, very fast paced <laughs> and very repeatable because the, the manual is quite thick, you know, and the, and the bomb can be reconfigured and all that good stuff. So my lead at the time was like, do you think you could do this or something like this using Tomb Raider verbs? And I was like, one, that's a weird question. And <laughs> two... Okay, give me like one week uninterrupted and I'll come back to you with an answer, right? And so I just kind of sat and jammed and prototyped and played with, you know, creating something that felt like it fit in Tomb Raider, felt like it used Tomb Raider verbs, right? Action verbs and things like that, and was truly procedural and, you know, probably it had legs for being able mm -hmm. to, you know, create many different types of permutations at runtime. So once I had that, I handed it to my boss and had him play it. And I am really, I'm a huge stickler. I'm very picky about playtests, even at this early stage. I firmly believe that it's imperative for a designer to be quiet, keep a still <laughs> face, step back, right? <laughs> you know, watch oh, the so person good. engaging with your content and just be and just let them do it. And uh, many yeah. designers, even experienced designers, really, really struggle with this, right? Because it can be so painful, especially, keep in mind, these prototypes are, they're simple. They're visually very low fidelity, right? There's a lot of, we call it like designer squinting that you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be like, okay, this this thing's a block, but it's supposed to be, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff that you just kind of have to forgive in these early prototypes. But I find that in that first few minutes that you watch someone pick up a controller and interface with the software, that's the purest feedback you're ever going to get for mm. whether, it's, whether it's a finished system, a finished gameplay, or a prototype, right? And so it's, it's just, it's so important to just shut up, right? <laughs> and, you know, swallow your pride if it breaks in some horrible way if they don't see the point of what you're trying to do if they miss something that you feel is completely obvious let it all happen take notes and incorporate that into your next revision so mm. even with this cold darkness thing this a uh, uh, little prototype that i made right like I, I step back i let my boss touch it like play it and all that good stuff and we figured out that like yeah it's got legs we feel pretty good about it i'll, I'll also say like i'll only really ever nudge a play test if it's like critically broken <laughs> you <Yeah>. know like <laughs> It's it's actually not going to recover, and even then, though, I'll try to just restart it and see if that, if we can play it again, right? Yeah. Um, you know, see if I can get a valuable experience out of that. But like, that's the only time I'll really ever interfere. But anyway, so like, when a prototype shows promise, like then I'll actually start going through the motions to get buy-in on it, which is like evaluating what it'll take to complete, you know, how it fits among our existing goals, what resources I need, like all of all that really kind of unsexy stuff. The the really the, the game <laughs> development stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> Budgets. Budgets. Um, yeah. God. Oh, and you, it, it's crazy to um hear you talk about it because it just sounds it's like digitally playing with Play-Doh, right? Like it is. You know, it's just so. It just sounds so fun, right? Like it sounds, and I think your approach to not being a backseat driver when people are playtesting something is. Is really good because I, I mean, like naturally, I think people they really want to talk about something they've created when someone first gets it. So I, I get like it's just I almost feel like naturally people want to be like do this, do this, and I think it's great that you just step back and that way you can get the most qualitative feedback because you haven't tried to create any kind of prejudices or anything like this when they first approached um, the prototype you've been working on, and it kind of leads me quite nicely into my next question, which is like. 
what is your objective when you, you, you begin working on a project? Like, what do you want to leave that project with? And what makes you feel good? You say, like, I did this. This is what I'm going to go out to achieve. And I'm going to do this. And uh, this is several questions in one. But does that change from project to project? Or do you always have that same objective? So that's actually changed a lot as I've gotten older, believe it or not. So when I was younger, I might have answered this question with something like, I, I want to work on as many different types of projects as I can. I was just, I was really hungry for experience and, and working with different teams. And I mean, I have a love of all video games, right? And so it's really hard to just be like, I want to work on this type. I know I want to work on everything. Like I haven't made an RTS. Let's make an RTS, you know? Yeah. But now, now I'd say that my objective is to create a healthy dev environment for my fellow teammates. And that might mean through mentorship or like the development of workflow and improving tools or maybe even seeking improvements to production methodology. But I really turned my attention to my team as my career has matured. The games are still important, obviously, right? Like, you know, like I'm here to make games 100%, but a happy, healthy, supported team is going to make far Mm. better content for far longer. And that's a, a really important thing to stress than a team that doesn't have those things. And now that I kind of know what I'm doing, you know, whereas like, you know, little Alicia that joined Rockstar out of college was like, no idea. Now that I kind of know what I'm doing, I feel like I, I can offer that kind of support to my team and help guide better culture, better day-to-day for them, right? So that they can, they can make better games. Yeah, I think that's a, gr- I think that's a very grown-up answer. Oh, thanks. I think it's, uh, yeah. it's so <laughs> it dry, like... but it's so true, right? <laughs> no, I don't. I think it's great. I think you come on leaps and bounds, you know, since mm. uh, since you fled to Nagoya. And, uh... <laughs> It's interesting, I was reading recently, CEOs and people who generally do well as they like progress throughout their careers or found in company, often like the, the best attributes they can have is building and encouraging and nurturing a team because you can never do everything right. And if you can build and nurture a team and you can bring on people to tell you, obviously you what to do and to guide you as much as you guide them, then you're going to achieve so much more as a group than you will as an individual. That's exactly it. Right. And, Mm. and figuring out that's something I realized as I went on in my career. I mean, you kind of know it, like everyone knows it, right. So cliche, right. You know, the people can do more than just one person, but like, (laughs) you know, really feeling it and understanding it, I think comes with, you know, career maturity. So, or time in the industry. It's a a very apt response. Um, (laughs) Well, looking back, I mean, obviously, I know you've spoken about your like your love for Max Payne and for Tomb Raider. Do you have a favorite project that it's, you've worked on? That's so hard for me to pick. I have such a like a cheesy answer for this. I have a few. <laughs> so, okay, Red Dead, I think, was my most most formative project. Like mm. straight out of college, big leagues, like buckle up, kiddo, right? So, <laughs> I learned an absolute shit ton on Red Dead, and those lessons stay with me today. Max Payne three was the first time I really felt like I was part of a close knit team of people who were like passionately, passionately cared about their craft and about their game. So like I felt so connected and really so part of the Vancouver team. And I have the fondest memories of working with that group. But I would say that Lara Croft and the Temple of Osiris probably holds the biggest place in my heart being both a game that I'm, I'm really proud of. And one of those games where I think I grew the most during production. I also think the Osiris team may have been the most creative, most talented, and most professional team of devs I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And that's oh. like part of it was just we were tight and close-knit. It was a small team. Mm. Um, it was a small team, but it was a small team of people. Like I said, you know, there's that that heart of people at Crystal who really just love those games, you know, the little top-down and little top-down arcade games. Those guys, those were the guys that were working on, on Osiris, and I was I was part of that group. So there's just um, every day, you know how you said it's like just kind of like playing with Play-Doh, right? Like every day is just yeah. kind of fun. You you know, it wasn't by any means the easiest project. Like we were on some pretty tight deadlines and it was it was grueling at times, but like I walked away from that game feeling very accomplished and very close to my coworkers, which was really, really cool. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got that feeling from you when we obviously, as we've like spoken, that that was the project that you can sense that level of, obviously you have enthusiasm for all your projects and that definitely comes across, but just that 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 almost like that emotional resonance with something where you're like, not only did you get to express yourself, but you did it with people that you, you get on extremely well with. And obviously that's, I don't know, like, you know, development within a team is always that that's one of the best things about it when everyone's on the same page yeah. and everyone's 
playing with Play-Doh at the same time. It's um, true. Yeah. And Osiris <laughs> was the, the first game in my career that I really had control over a lot of the game. You know, mm. I worked on all of the game's kind of interactive objects, the way the player interacted with the world, and I worked on all the boss fights, you know? So, like, that's that's a big chunk of game right there, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. huge, yeah. And I think I hope they do make another one, right? Like, I hope so like, too. Not pushing you To everyone it, but, listening, uh... I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely do not know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, I mean... Stepping away from like, your, I suppose your day-to-day role and like looking at like almost like bigger picture stuff, I'm incredibly lucky, I think I'm like privileged to be able to work in the games industry and it's obviously grown at a phenomenal pace and it's very liberal, I suppose, with its use and how it, with content in general. And it's fantastic to obviously see new people coming in and at an educational and institutional level, like being taken far more seriously now than it was like two decades ago. But at the same time, obviously there has been, there are some incredibly poor elements Mm -hmm. within it. You know, you do have consistent reports of poor work environments, discrimination, marginalization. What do you think the industry can do to prevent the issues we keep experiencing and reading about? Yeah. Um, so this this is a huge question. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's a very heavy question too, and it's it, this is on my mind all the time, uh, both because of my my own experiences and I know the experiences of, of my peers and the you know the people coming into the industry. The thing that's on my mind and the thing that has most of my focus right now is advocating for women and people of color in leadership at AAA Studios. It's something that I am very passionate about at Crystal. I think diversity in leadership is critical to cultural change, right? And I absolutely, mm-hmm. I just want to be really clear, I absolutely do not think that most of the white male developers that I work with are bad people, you know? Yeah. Um, on the contrary, I've had, I've historically adored and greatly respected most of my fellow developers for like the course of my career. And I've had some really incredibly fulfilling professional relation or relationships form over the years. But a homogenous mm. culture just naturally breeds blind spots for discriminatory or unfair thinking, right? Um, and it's an it's an unconscious thing that just doesn't occur to people, you know, yeah. like in their day to day. And I just want to kind of supply some examples of stuff that's happened to me, you know, of, uh, you know, kind of seemingly innocent interactions that I've had with my coworkers, right? But that they impacted me in, in negative ways, right? I'd say many, many, many years ago, right? An artist colleague just kind of out of the blue lamented just how much harder I had to work than other people just to be taken seriously. And he was referring to my gender, right? I was super young in my career at the time and like stunned to hear this. Mm. I, I didn't perceive myself any different from my fellow developers. And it was heartbreaking to hear someone tell me that I was. I was once told by a director level dev after having a very heated conversation about validating player mechanics that I was too passionate and and I couldn't be spoken to, you know, because there was a wall, right? My passion was creating a wall on an annual review an actual like on paper annual review, I was once told that I was perceived as aggressive. And that was tough for me to hear because that's something that I've heard for a lot of my life. But that feedback was immediately followed up with, but don't change. We really like that about you. That's a hard message to hear. And that's something that I've actually spent most of my career oscillating between being chastised Mm. for being too intense and then being praised for it. It's hard to handle. Uh, But I think one of the most recent ones that I, I wanted to mention is that when I was pregnant, a director level developer over the coffee machine, right? jokingly asked me when I was leaving the company. And I was also asked that exact same question by like a fellow developer who just simply didn't think about what they might be communicating to me by asking that kind of question. It, it's because it's just a funny question that you ask people, mm. right? And so my point by by offering all of these personal experiences is that, you know, I had these interactions because culture, you know, my studio mm. culture, which is a very homogenous culture, allowed this kind of thinking to be normal and accepted, Right. And ultimately, that's just harmful to people who don't have a voice in that culture. That is why, while there are plenty of things that the game industry could be doing better, I think to see change on the inside, allowing diverse voices at the table of leadership where decisions are made is one of the biggest things that we can do. So for me, I'm particularly focused on female developers and leadership. I'm sure you can guess why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To really kind of drive this home, the reason for that is because I am well over a decade into my career and I have never worked on a team with a female developer in a position of senior leadership. Wow. I have never received mentorship from a female dev in a leadership leadership position on any game that I've been on. I have seen women struggle and fight to earn senior leadership positions over the course of my career. And I have experienced myself periods of time feeling unheard by my fellow male developers 
simply because they cannot relate to my experiences. That to me is one of the biggest things that we we have power to change, right? And like mm-hmm. every dev, you know, has power to put pressure on their leadership to become more inclusive, to hire, you know, a more diverse mm-hmm. staff to represent them, you know. On a more micro level, I'm also focused on mentorship within my studio, making sure that younger designers have a senior dev to go to to discuss their career and their aspirations, their interpersonal issues, growth goals, that kind of thing, because that's simply something I didn't have in my formative years. It's hard to hear, isn't it? Because it's, mm. you, you know, when it's something like everyone cares about and we are so like liberal in terms of our use with technology and it's such a forward thinking medium, like games is like obviously embracing is one of the is one of the best things about the industry is it embraces change, which will enhance the experience of the people it's creating its products for. Um, it's really on that. Yeah, that's why I find it really tough. Like obviously when I have guests on and we talk about this because as much as it embraces change in that way, like it's so archaic mm-hmm. in its approach to people that make the games. I think the change definitely has to come from within, mm-hmm. but it has to it has to be a, a constant across. That's yeah, not I mean, going to happen until other people are there, you know, sharing their experiences and their points of view. Diversity, I think, is just one of the big keys to getting that to change. I think, yeah, even with like zero hour contracts, I know this is like slightly different, but I think it sets the precedent that you could argue that QA tester is like one of the entry level positions. Not always at all. They're extremely vital to the success of a Absolutely. game. I think that's why it's very disappointing when you, you, you do hear that they haven't been treated well. Right, like you, you hear stories about them not being invited to the dev parties or that. to launch parties. Yeah. yeah, and it's infuriating because it's like without that feedback, you don't have a product, right? Like mm-hmm. you just don't have a product, and you really want to be protecting, nurturing all your talent. But they're often treated like that from their entry point and like put on zero-hour contracts. That that just sets an awful precedent throughout the rest of your career within the industry. Because you're like, oh well, basically everyone's just a commodity, mm. and it's it's awful to hear your experiences and. Even like, you know, being pregnant and being asked, like, you know, when are you leaving? Like, what? It's an awful so assumption. What, am I going to quit? Right? Like, oh, I was, I was, yeah, intense. I was, I was, I was absolutely intense, you know? I mean, what, what is that like? Like, you know, having kids and, you know, being a mom within the industry, like. My approach to my career has changed a great deal, right? I think the the short answer, at least from watching other parents before me have children, is that it is challenging having kids in the game industry. My experience has been a bit different. Let me explain. So I have one little boy, right? He's my first and my only, um, who was born on the day that California closed at the beginning of the pandemic. So I don't know if my experience has been easier or harder (laughs) Um, than it might have been before the pandemic, because this is just my experience, you know? So my little boy, Ash, he's had a pretty profound and fascinating effect on my work-life balance in particular. Before he was born, I was definitely the type of person who would just kind of gravitate towards putting in extra hours at work, particularly if I was feeling time crunched or like really passionate about the work I was doing. You know, like if I get really wrapped up in one of those prototypes, for example, it's a tricky thing. It's why crunch is controversial, right? Is that Defining it is very tough. There's a concept called flow when you're developing, right? And sometimes you do just want to sit and finish a thought and that can mm. require a few extra hours at work, right? You know, I'm not advocating crunch at all. <laughs> I want to make that very clear. But, you know, I was a type of person who would be like, you know, I'd like to wrap this up instead of leaving it, you know, six today, I'm going to leave it eight. With Ash around, I am firmly, firmly time boxed. I get up in the morning, make him his breakfast, lunch, and snacks. He goes to daycare at 8 a.m. I drive him there. I pick him up at 5 p.m. every day. I make him dinner, hang out with him a bit, bathe him, read to him, put him to bed. So my time to work is, is in that little time that he's at daycare. And I don't free up until about 8.30 p.m. when he goes to bed. And at that point, I need to think about eating something you know, myself, like having dinner, um, cleaning the house and prepping for bed, right? Because he's going to get up at 5.30 or 6 the next morning. I just really don't have the luxury anymore of putting a few extra hours in here and there to finish something I didn't get to during the day, which was just something that I just routinely did throughout my career. So mm. what's interesting about that is to my surprise, that it has made me a better developer. I am way better now at prioritizing and time boxing than I ever have. I'm better at messaging changes to my schedule to others. I'm better at delegating and time estimating. I'm more respectful of my own time, 
right, mm. than I've ever been. Yeah. I know it's a weird statement to make, but like my time is very valuable and taxed now at, mm. at a much higher rate than it was before. So it's it's kind of wild the effect it's had on me. It's just made me a more efficient worker, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's actually made my job more satisfying to me because my work-life balance has improved. Yeah. Uh, so if you had asked me, you know, five years ago if I was capable of taking on, you know, like a new leadership position at work or right, new responsibilities while raising a toddler, I would have laughed at you. But like, yeah. that's kind of what's happened is, is you know, I've, I've figured out this nice way to do my job to my satisfaction while making sure that he has enough time uh, mm. to, you know, get the attention that he needs from his mother. What's really interesting is I have pretty regular lunches with a principal systems designer uh, at Undead Labs, actually. Um, and the reason why he and I started having lunches is that we met briefly at a little conference, you know, a little talk, right? And uh, we were like, wow, we are we doing the same thing right now? <laughs> you know, he's transitioning into a lead position. He just had a baby, like all of that stuff, you know, baby during the pandemic and, and whatnot. And he recently told me over lunch that he used to define himself by his career um, wholly. Um, and he said, I just don't anymore. And it's mm. it's really weird, really, really weird. And I, you know, I find myself in that position as well. You know, I spent the last decade or so really defining myself by my accomplishments and my career. And this thing, remember, I wanted to do this like around 12, <laughs> you know, this thing <laughs> that I've been, you know, kind of shaping my whole life to do. And now I've got this other little thing that's taking a lot more priority. And my, I was afraid of that before I had a kid that that would interfere with my career or that would, you know, uh, deprioritize this thing that I had worked so hard to get quite the opposite has happened, right? It's made me appreciate my job and my accomplishments more. It's made me stress the importance of finding balance in my life, you know, and it's mm. made me kind of figure out how to prioritize both while still feeling like a functional human. So that's been pretty cool. I don't know if that was the answer you were expecting, but because I, I think that it still is having kids is challenging in general. What do you think companies should be doing to support new parents one thing that i encountered when i was trying to take my leave is that we had uh when i just had the baby right is we had a we had a pretty archaic leave policy and i ended up challenging that at crystal i had a conversation with our hr department to say like hey you know i i don't know that this is fair you know i don't know that this is right for our studio and it's i don't know if it's right for me either um and that was actually a really healthy conversation with them that resulted in policy change and that just kind of brought to my attention, that's something I think that companies could be doing is taking a look at their leave policies and making sure that they're competitive and reasonable. Mm. One thing that I found that was just kind of a repeat thing as I was you know, pregnant and preparing for having a baby is that it's really hard for someone, even myself, who doesn't have kids to understand what it takes to raise kids, you mm. know, and the time commitment, the life change, like that sort of thing. And those time commitment, like I was saying, the time boxing, right? You know, when, when Ash is in my life versus at daycare, people don't intuit who don't have kids just how much time that takes. And so I've had to frequently explain, you know, like, for example, when we were having the leave discussion with Crystal, I was asked, well, how much time do you think you need? <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. wow, I've never had a child before. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, all I have, all I have is our, our recommendations for other people. Like, oh, well, you need yeah. X amount of time, you know, like you need as basically as much time as you can get, you know, because raising mm. a tiny, tiny baby is very, very difficult, you know, and that bonding time, you know, in the, in the beginning is so pivotal to, you know, kind of getting them started on their life. Yeah. yeah. So we got really lucky, my partner and I, between California State Benefits and the policy change at Crystal, the really healthy, amazing policy change at Crystal, we were able to stagger our leave for the first nine months of mm. Ash's life. So I think if I were to recommend just one thing for any company in the game industry is, you know, take a look at your parental leave policy and make sure that one, it is equitable to males and females, you know, because like we don't always do that. I don't know how it is over where you're at, but like I've I've noticed a trend, an old the old trend, right, was that, you know, mm. like parental leave was two weeks, you know, or something like yeah. that, which is just absurd. You know, yeah. where yeah. And, you know, and there was a difference between maternity leave and, and, and paternity leave. Women would get more time off to recover and things like that, but it still wasn't a ton of time, right? Like, I think trying to be more equitable there and offering, you know, equal leave rights to both parents because, like, you just don't know which one's going to take point on the kid, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, it's so true. You know, going back to that that question of, like, so, when are you, when are you quitting, you know? <laughs> well, I'm not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's so awkward. You know? but yeah. that, I can't even believe that was an assumption. I think in the UK, it's like, I don't know, my, my son, son's 15 now so it's like a long time ago but I remember I had yeah two weeks leave his mum had nine months 
So it's, and that was just, you, you did that. It's like, just what you, know, you did. That, and that's, 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 exactly all, that's all the dance. When, when I was having conversations with Crystal, right, about like, you know, can we look at this? Can we talk about if this is fair and equitable, right? Even my co-developers, right? When I was explaining like, hey, I'm having these conversations with Crystal, the response would be things like that. Like, oh, well, I only got two weeks, you know? It's like, well, mm. but like, was that it's right? Old. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's fantastic though that Crystal looked at that and were like, yeah, we'll change. Like, I really want to give know. them credit for that, actually. Like, yeah. you know, they were open to conversation with it. They took the time, you know, to mm -hmm. take a, a magnifying glass to their policy and they were open to changing it. So that was really cool. Not that I want to, you know, pimp my own company too much, but that's huge, right? Like, if, you we're give about, credit. if we're talking about what companies can do to change, listening to your employees when they ask those questions and being serious about them is huge. Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think it's incredibly important that you acknowledge and give credit to those companies because you want other people to hear this. You know, they might have had a similar conversation with their HR team, right? At their developer, they're at, and they might have got the answer to the law. Well, no, it's always been like that. So we're going to keep it like that. Or that's the standard in our state, et cetera. And you want people to hear that actually other companies don't do this mm -hmm. because that's often like, you know, the, the retort you hear is, well, you know, this is what all companies do. Right. Why they? Just because yeah. all companies do something wrong doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. You know, do you know, do you know what I mean? I mm -hmm. think it's just you push back at that and you're like, well, you know, I think in like, I'm pretty sure it's in Scandinavia. I think it's Scandinavia, somewhere in the country in Scandinavia. You get like two years parental. Leave. I know. Like that, I, I, think I, I like heard that and was like, oh my God, that'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like, and then it's no surprise when you hear like, I think it's Norway is the happiest country in the right. world. You're not shocked. And you're like, well, anyway, like I could go really deep on this because it really frustrates me. But I think it's fantastic that Crystal did that. And I think it's brilliant that you're like, you know, you're respecting your time. You're like, you shouldn't work to live or live to work. Like neither of those should be what it's about. You know, you should really enjoy my job. Absolutely. But yeah, the having something mandate my work-life balance has been very healthy for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think a good way of wrapping this up would be to find out what's next for you. What's on the horizon? So yeah, I can't talk a bunch about what I'm working on right now. Sadly, I'm working on some R&D with Crystal um, that I'm actually extremely excited for and can't wait until I can talk about. Um, <laughs> that's going to be really great but um yeah between the the lead position um i'm also exploring establishing a technical design department at the studio i actually did a panel this year at gdc for what is it to be a technical designer uh, because that's the kind of designer that i identify as and so that's something that i find that when i kind of explain what that is and this could be a whole different podcast because i know this is towards the end i find that a lot of people really identify and go like oh crap like that's what i am that's the name for what i am that's what i do you know so um it seems like it's kind of a, a budding specialization in the industry and it's something that I'm, I'm very excited about exploring defining better and uh, getting some recognition for it crystal i do think that your role what you do is fantastic oh, thank i you. think it's it's so cool it just sounds like you just play a lot basically <laughs> like you create prototypes and you play with them and uh, but yeah um <laughs> it's, it's a dream right it's such a fun job yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is the dream but yeah it's uh I just want to say it's been such a pleasure having you on. This has been um, really fun. Thank you so much. Really good. I know we got a bit deep at the end. You've got to explore these issues, you know, and it's, yeah. it's been incredible hearing like not only your views on like these points, but also um, just your whole career. It's okay. been really, really cool. But yeah, um, yeah I, I would like to say um, obviously the views expressed today are those of Alicia's and my own and do not represent our companies in any way, shape or form. And if you want to reach out to us, you can at the game dev show at ptw.com. Uh, thank you, Alicia. Thank you. Game over.